If you have a Bible, please turn to our New Testament reading, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Uh, we heard this just read, but two verses. Listen to this once again. Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, just imagine for a moment that you are Euodia or Syntyche and you just got called out, <laughs> right? How in the world is this loving I mean, just on the surface of it, right? If I was up here and I suddenly said, listen, people, and especially you, Nick, I plead with you. Do you, do you feel that? Like, we're giggling now because that's what we do when it's embarrassing, right? Some would giggle, some would leave, some would gasp. Why in the world does Paul suddenly call out to people by name? Now, remember, this is a letter, that's being read out loud to the church. Some of you in this room, if, if I called you out by name and I begged you in front of the whole room to resolve a conflict you have with somebody in this room, I mean, some of you, it would, you would probably never come back, right? Some of you would be so shamed by that. And people are no different now than then. Like, this is embarrassing stuff. Why did Paul do this? This letter that over and over is marked by him saying, I love you guys. And these guys clearly love him. This is a healthy emotional relationship that Paul and this, this church has. This is a healthy church. So why in the midst of this does Paul suddenly go to a place that is so fraught with risk, right? What is it about Euodia and Syntyche being in conflict that warrants a public discussion? Well, if you've been reading through the letter over and over, and I hope you have, and we're gonna keep going, we're gonna keep going through the letter during Advent, and I hope you read it every day. It only takes 12 minutes for the average reader. Remember, the main theme of the letter is in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, the one thing I would stress is that your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. When people see you, whether it's on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, I don't know, whatever you use, or at the grocery store, or at the restaurant, or at the bar, or at work, or driving on the road, when they see you, they should see a person behaving in a manner that matches up to what behavior will be when the kingdom comes. They should see you as an advance example of how people will behave when the Lord returns and all things are made new. People should see 
Just some of you memorized that passage in Galatians. They should see love and joy and peace and patience with other drivers (laughs) and with waitresses and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. Now, as soon as Paul writes that in chapter 1, verse 27, the theme of the letter, that the way you behave when it's seen, it should match up to what behavior will be in the kingdom of God. As soon as he writes that, he starts immediately talking about unity. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. The one thing I would stress is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind. Striving side by side for the gospel. I think that's when Yodi and Syntyche's heart started racing. And their palms started getting sweaty. It was only about 30 people in this church. Now, that's the exact same language he says later. They labored side by side. So he's, he's giving them a little warm-up, like, um, you know, get the heart going up early, just so that they don't have a heart attack when it actually comes later. And then a few verses after that, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, So if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit, if your hearts are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Everybody knows he's talking about Yodi and Sitiki. Everybody knows it. And they know it. Right? If we were only 30 people, And two of the key leaders in the church were locked into a disagreement to the point of conflict that is tearing the church apart. And he writes those words, you know they're getting read, right? Unity is a big deal. Not just in Philippians, but in every letter Paul wrote, he harped on two issues, holiness and unity. It is clearly a big part of what he means when he says the main thing for churches in communities where they are missionary churches. When he says the main thing is that our public behavior has to match up to the behavior of the king, unity is front and center on what he's talking about. Now, why is unity so important? Unity in this letter is important for two primary reasons. Number one, disunity is a scandal to the gospel in this letter. It's not just that conflict hurts, it does. And it's not just that Syntyche and Yodia, who it clearly says they've got a long history of laboring side by side for the gospel of the kingdom. It'll be really sad, right? If people who have a long history of laying it on the line together for God's kingdom, if they lose their friendship, that's sad. It's sad when friendships break and history stops. But that's not the biggest issue for Paul in this letter. The biggest issue for Paul is not the relational loss. It's that it scandalizes the gospel. You see, the gospel in the Bible is the arrival of the kingdom In the presence of Jesus himself. That in Jesus the kingdom of God has arrived. 
And the mission of Jesus, his mighty works and his preaching, it all points to the new reality that in him the kingdom has arrived. And then the Spirit of God powerfully plants the kingdom in, in the church. One of my favorite theologians, Leslie Newbegin, he often wrote that the church is the first shoots of the new creation. Remember what we heard in Jesus' prayer in John's gospel that Martin read just a few minutes ago. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, Jesus is praying, but for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Our unity is the central theme of the longest prayer in the Bible recorded of Jesus. Over and over in this prayer, he talks about this and he prays that we may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected into one so that the world may know. Look, we see here that a fundamental feature of God's work in the world is to redeem the world out of its endless conflicts. You know that disunity and conflict is wrong. We're all grieving it right now. It's wearing us out right now. That Hamas terrorized Israelis. And Israel responded by killing more men and women and children than there should ever be allowed to happen. This is killing us. What's going on in Ukraine right now? It's wearing us out. What some of you just went through for the past few days, you wish you could get away from it, right? Why is it so hard for siblings to get along? Why is it so rare to have a Thanksgiving meal that looks like some picture on the front of Time magazine 50 years ago? Why can't we do this? We know in our bones that all this conflict, all this unity is not right. And right at the heart of Jesus' primary prayer, his work in the world is to put an end to that stuff. It's to bring unity And he does this by drawing us into the relationship that the Son and the Father have. Peace and unity. This is what we were made for. This is what Jesus died on the cross to effect. And when the group of people who are supposed to be the manifestation of the kingdom to the world, have disunity, not little picadillos, right? These are two leaders that are locked into something that's tearing the church apart. This is not just a little personality conflict. This is leaders in a deep conflict that's threatening the very nature of the church. This isn't you have a different favorite football team than me and I'm jealous of you because you have hair and I don't. This is a tearing apart. This is a going different ways. And, and this, this betrays the very thing the gospel is about. It scandalizes the gospel. That's why Paul had to name them. And he had to beg them. A second reason that unity is critical in Philippians Is because unity is critical to evangelism. It's essential to evangelism. Evangelism, this is when Christians use their words 
to bear witness to the new reality that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is when we actually say it, when we communicate with our words the true story of Jesus. It's not acts of service. It's not deeds of justice. Those are very important, but that is different than evangelism. Evangelism is when we actually tell the story of Jesus. And for Christians, there is no substitute for telling the story of Jesus. And when Christians tell the story of Jesus, they have to talk about the kingdom. Because no gospel writer could tell the story of Jesus without talking about the kingdom. If we talk about Jesus without talking about the kingdom, we're peddling cheap grace. We're inviting people into an insufficient personal salvation. And the evangelical church has done that for too long. And if we talk about the kingdom without talking about Jesus... We're turning the gospel into a political program apart from an invitation to know Christ. And the liberal church has done that for too long. Remember the original preaching of Jesus on the gospel, the original gospel on the lips of Jesus was that in Jesus the kingdom has come. Not kingdom without Jesus and not Jesus without kingdom. What is the kingdom? It's life the way God intended it to be. With the poor raised up. And justice for all. And mercy. And economic flourishing. Where everybody has a stake in the production side of the economy. It's all of this. We must resist any tendency as a church. To to go after social issues. While marginalizing evangelism. But we also must resist the other tendency to do evangelism and think it has nothing to do with politics or economics or racism or justice. There is a gospel to be proclaimed in Christians. We are not allowed to be silent about it. However much we are embarrassed by the way some churches have done evangelism, we are not allowed to deceive ourselves into imagining that anything we are, anything we do can take the place of actually naming Jesus Christ. We are not allowed to be silent on the gospel. And if our presence or our deeds ever become a substitute for the explicit words of naming Jesus, we have betrayed the gospel. We have to connect the story of Jesus to our deeds of mercy and justice. Now, when we do this, when we tell people the story of Jesus and this kingdom of peace and justice and mercy and flourishing... It is impossible to believe unless you can say, go to church with me and you can see it. How is it possible that someone could believe the kingdom of God? Where there is unity in the midst of diversity and justice, where the rich and the poor and the Democrats and the Republicans and and the white and the black and all of these tribalisms, how is it possible to believe that that is the kingdom and it is at hand unless you can say, 
Come with me, I'll show you. Come to my small group, and you'll see rich and poor, old and young. Come to my church with me, and you'll see men and women relating in virtuous ways. How is it possible someone could believe that the power which has the last word on human affairs is a man hanging on a cross if there's not a congregation that is living it because they believe it? All evangelism must be rooted in and lead back to a believing community, a community of praise in a world of doubt and skepticism, a community of truth in a society where the left is denying the truth of nature And the right is refusing to say that words matter. A a selfless community in the midst of a selfish world. A community that instead of living for itself is deeply involved in the needs of its neighborhood. A church that renounces introverted concern for its own self and lives for the sake of those who are not in the church. A community that refuses to turn Christianity into a private religion, but insist on living out the gospel in public. A community of mutual responsibility, where I am responsible to you in a world of individualism. A community of hope in a world of pessimism and despair about the future. A community marked by unity in a country that is so marked by tribalism, right? If you watch Fox and I listen to NPR, we are in tribes that are no longer allowed to respect each other and get along. That's tribalism. And there's ethnic tribalism. We're discovering this now, all this anti-Semitism that's breaking out and the equal and opposite violent reaction to it. A community marked by unity. A church that lives like this will be a foretaste of God's kingdom, of God's redeeming grace. A church like this will be a sign of God's redeeming grace. A church like this will be an instrument of God's redeeming grace. Now, how in the world can Euodia and Syntyche get there? I mean, just think how hard it is for you to get along with your mother or your brother or your sister Or the person in this church that you already know, you avoid. How in the world can Yodi and Syntyche get to unity? Well, in this letter, Paul gives a lot of help. But I want to point out four that I think would be good for our churches. First of all, prayer. Unity requires prayer. Right after this, in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice. Look, this fight for unity, don't let it turn you into morose people. Like, you can rejoice in the midst of this struggle. And then he says, let your reasonableness be known to all. Lord's at hand, do not be anxious about this. But pray with thanksgiving. He started the whole letter by calling the church into prayer. Prayer is critical to this. Look, there is a relationship in my life that is impossible to heal right now. I do not know how it's going to be healed apart from a miracle or the return of Jesus. So you know what I do with that? Every Sunday when we stand here, I pray for it. I pray for a miracle. And all through the week, I pray for a miracle. 
Prayer, we pray because God acts differently if we don't pray. Prayer is not a mind trip. It's not a psychological technique. It has lots of benefits, but at its core, prayer is the key way we partner with God. Paul says this right at the beginning of the letter, right? In chapter 1, he says, when he's talking about the fact that he might die, he says, yes, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will change. I'll be delivered. Yeah, and if you try to figure out, wait, when I pray, isn't God just going to do what he's going to do anyway? No. Well, if you can't figure it out, that's okay. You can still drive the car if you don't understand the internal combustion engine. You can pray if you don't understand how it works. Just pray. Prayer, it's critical. Number two, right thinking. It, it matters to think right. All through this letter, Paul lays out, you need to think this way. You need to think this way. You need to think this way. All through the letter, right thinking lives, leads to right living. I mean, for example, when he's going on about unity in chapter 2, all of a sudden he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, think this way. And then he says, think about Jesus. Here's what Jesus did. He was equal to God, but he did not consider his equality to God a thing to be leveraged, a thing to be maximized. Instead, he voluntarily surrendered his incredible privileges. In this act of humility, over and over, Paul says, think, think, think. In fact, in one point in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if you don't, well, you'll get there. Over and over in Philippians, right thinking lives to right living. And it's right thinking that leads to unity. That's why he says in chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to think, to agree in the Lord. We've got to learn to think right. We've got to come together and to agree in our thinking in the Lord. A, th- a third issue that comes up. I said four, but just three. We have to help each other. Look what he says in verse two, four, verse two. I beg you, Odian, I beg Syntyche to agree in the Lord. yes. I ask you also, true companion. We don't know who the true companion is. A lot of debate. We're not sure, but it's help these women who have labored side by side. Look, young people, there is a habit, our younger generation, that you are in where you just let people do their thing. And you do not have courage. You are cowards about this. Of saying something to somebody. If your grandparents are jerks about it. And say too much to people about what they're thinking. You're cowards about it. And pendulum swings are always bad. In any direction. But all of us. All of us. Listen. There are moments where we have to help each other. There are moments. Right. Yodi and Syntyche. Apparently they're wrapped up in a conflict. That they're locked in. And they can't get out of. And somebody's got to come along. And somebody's got to enter into that. Somebody's got to get their nose into Yodi and Syntyche's business. Do it lovingly, obviously, right? But there are moments where people are trapped in a conflict that we, we need to pray and we need to think. And then we need to put feet to our prayers and get involved and help each other. Now, I just want to point out, I've only been talking about this as us. But there's a problem there. The problem is 
When Jesus prayed, he wasn't talking about incarnation. He was talking about the relationship between incarnation and the Catholic Church, and Covenant Presbyterian, and the Baptist Church, and the Mennonite Church, and the Lutheran Church, and the non-denominationals, and our relationship to Grace Covenant. In our relationship to divine community. Do you know when Paul wrote a letter, he never singled out a church in a city. He always wrote to the church of a city. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be united as he is united with the Father. He prayed that the church would exhibit this kind of unity. We need to grieve the fact that our churches are not united. Denominationalism has given us the excuse to be okay with disunity. Jesus is not okay with it. Denominationalism allows us to befriend other people without letting them join us. We need to grieve this. If you're broken with somebody so deeply that it's tearing people apart, we need to grieve that. The fact that The church is not united in America or in the world. We need to grieve that. Number two, we need to marvel that God is still working through the church despite our divisions. He's still blessing us with the gift of new life and surprising evidences of his grace. And number three, we need to commit to seek to express the unity of the church in this city. Stop talking about Catholics as if they're not Christians. They are. Stop feeding into the family drama. Think about the other denominations in this city the way you would need to think about your brothers and sisters that can't eat Thanksgiving together. What's it going to take to get there? And let's work for it. Let's find ways to work together as churches Because Jesus prayed, when we show unity, it can astound the world into believing. Let's pray.